the uh, 21st Folio podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Bridge Theatre's production of Julius Caesar. Uh, the Bridge Theatre is a new theatre in London that is was just built and is being run by Nicholas Heitner, who used to run the National Theatre. And this production was uh, live broadcast to cinemas by NT Live. The production stars uh, Ben Wishaw as Brutus and David Morrissey as Mark Antony. And we all saw the pseudo live production because we're none of us are actually in England's time zone. So, and we'll be discussing, yeah, the recorded version of it. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. Um, I'm the editor in chief of Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at the West Cineast. And my guests with me today are Mary Angela Rowe. I'm Mary Angela Rowe. I'm the editor at large of Seventh Row. And you can find me on Twitter at Lapsed Victorian. And Noemi Berkowitz. Hi, I'm Noemi Berkowitz. I'm an actor and director in Berlin, and you can find me on Twitter at Noemi Ola. Um, great. So I guess we have to, to set the stage for this production, we have to kind of explain how it's kind of a radical staging. Um, and what they've done is they've pulled out the seats from the stalls in the, in the theater, and all of the the audience who's in the stalls they're all standing and um the stage sort of pops up all over the place out of nowhere and you don't necessarily and the crowds get herded by people who are um work for the the company and when the production starts um it's like before as people are filing in there's a rock band that's playing and they're playing songs I mean you might remember what the songs are um, one of them was Seven Nation Army. One of them was We're Not Gonna Take It. Um, there were songs that everybody knew and could sing along to and were very easy to learn, which was part of the point. So the way the production is staged, the people who are standing in the pit are the citizens of Rome. So the audience members who have come and are standing play the role of citizens. And... So as this rock band is playing and as people are being encouraged to sing along, it's like they're pumping up the crowd for a rally. And so in that sense, it's very, very immersive because everybody who's standing on the main floor is part of the production and will be moved around as the stage moves. And there are people in the crowd shouting who are plants um, who will shout out lines from the play. Yeah, because the the singing goes on for a while. Like there's four ten minutes of this. Right. And it starts as people are filing in and even the the intro to the NT Live production happens as the concert's going on and, and they assure you that it's not a rock concert, that they are actually doing Shakespeare. Oh my god. And yeah, they're encouraging the audience to sing along and you can see people sort of like the dudes in the audience, the young dudes <laughs> are singing along and it sort of takes a while for everyone else to start shouting the lyrics. And it once the production sort of start starts, then the lighting changes and there's kind of like flashing lights on the audience and the stage and it looks more like it's like red lights, I think, and it's more like a rock concert kind of. Gets more immersive. And at some point Mark Antony comes on stage in a um like a tracksuit uh sweatshirt that says Mark Antony on the back, and he comes out to try and tell everybody to come like sing along. And he's clearly, he's like, it's like he's the opening act that's pumping up the crowd before Caesar shows up. Because the way the production is staged, 
the start of the production is one of Caesar's rallies, and you are at one of Caesar's rallies. Oh, right. We didn't mention the, all the do this signs. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bunch of people wearing hats that say Caesar, red hats with white text, reminiscent of a certain famous baseball cap. And there's a bunch of people in the crowd either carrying signs or wearing shirts that say, do this exclamation point with, with Julius Caesar written under it. And this is a line from the play. What is it? Mark Antony says at one point in the play, when Caesar says, do this. When Caesar says, do this, it is performed. Yes. Thank you, Noemi. And so this is apparently the slogan of Caesar's campaign for political, not quite party, because he's not a party. He's aiming to become an absolute ruler, his following, I guess. Right, because he's just about to be crowned when the play starts. And I just want to put in a word to say, the Bridge Theatre looks beautiful. Like, what an interesting space. Um, it's theatre in the round, and the way that the floor moves, parts of the stage can rise and descend. So at one moment, someone can be elevated above the crowd, speaking to everybody. And then the platform they're on can slowly descend until they're on the floor and they can walk out through the exits that normal people come in and out of. I think it's kind of like a young Vic sort of design in that it's not always theater in the round, because um, but the, the space, at least in the stalls, is um, flexible. So what they've done is they've turned it into theater in the round. Because I'm not sure that the, like, the balconies that, where there are actual people sitting, I think that's just three, like... Um, three sides as opposed to yeah, yeah. but I, I remember walking in there and being like what theater is this I haven't been here and I've been to every and then you had reminded me that this is the bridge theater it just got built yeah so like <laughs> this is so this is the his first post national theater Shakespeare they had one other production which was um, the young Karl Marx with Rory Kinnear this is the second one yeah so I guess like the the really interesting thing is that it kind of gets you fired up so that then when they actually start the dialogue you're kind of and it it even works fairly well if you're not there if you're on screen that you're kind of all fired up and ready to watch the drama and participate participate you can still feel that like even in the audience in the theater alex and i could still feel that sort of frisson and it's like how intense must this have been if you were there you know with that huge sound and the light it must have been overwhelming that's a question i was asking myself a lot throughout the production during various Mm -hmm. scenes because i really did feel like this was a well-filmed production but because of the staging i feel it must have been so different being there in person yeah i think i was likening i was calling this to ma this sort of um, Sam Mendes, Donmar Warehouse cabaret version of Julius Caesar. Yeah. So, I mean, in that production, it, they had basically installed the same idea. They'd taken out the seats, but instead they'd replaced them with tables and chairs. And then the audience became the audience at the Kit Kat Club, and it's this sort of intimate space, and you become complicit in it because as you're enjoying the fun of the cabaret, you too are ignoring the Nazis. And this production takes that a step further by 
I mean, complicity is something that we're all struggling with right now, she said tritely. But this production takes it a step further by actually making the crowd become the mob whose loyalties shift from speech to speech. Right. Well, and also, because they have people who are hurting the crowds, and you have to hurt the crowd so that the stage can sort of pop up and be flexible in the way it wants. Like, you get used, I would imagine you're getting used to sort of doing what somebody tells you and watching whatever is put in front of you. Because I think for this production... Caesar has a line to um, Casca, I think. No, no, not Casca. It's one of the other conspirators where he says something like, uh, stay near that I remember you. That's Trebonius. Yeah. Okay. And what I felt with this production is it just really, whatever is put in front of you, that's what you become involved with. So at the beginning, it's this, it's Caesar's band, and then you're like, Caesar! And then... Now Caesar has his rally off stage, and we're watching the conspirators try and convince Brutus to conspire with them and to be their leader. And then all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh, well, that's where the action is." So now, you know, let's let's watch this conspiracy play out. And then you're totally on their side. And then just whatever gets put. In, then when Mark Antony makes his speech at, at the funeral, now you're like, "Oh, this guy's got a point, and he's charming." And now I'm for him. One of the things that I kept thinking about through, especially the first act of this play, was how far are they pushing the Trump comparison? Because it's pretty clearly a Trump comparison from moment one. You're, you've got the MAGA hats that say Caesar. Caesar is an older man. I would say he's in his certainly in his 60s. Mark Antony is perhaps in his 40s. And Brutus, unusually, is a younger man. He's in his late 20s, early 30s. So they're, they're pushing this Trump-like figure who has these massive rallies and whips up the crowd, as opposed to Brutus, who is sort of a public intellectual figure. So you've already got this sort of prearranged Donald Trump populist, Brutus, establishment liberalism kind of feel. Right, because the when Trump shows up, sorry, not when Trump, when Caesar shows up at the beginning, oh boy. Uh. Um, um, and he's sort of shaking everybody's hands in the crowd. Somebody hands Brutus a book that, you know, we see a giant photo of Brutus on it. And he's signing. Says, Liberty. Right. And he signs the book for, for the person in the crowd. And then has his photo taken with himself and his book. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. He literally is photographed holding his book on his way to go sit somewhere. <laughs> like, he sort of, he seems to me like one of those superstar U.S. university professors. Yeah. You know? He seems to me like one of those, yeah, sort of like intellectuals with a large Twitter following. Yes. <laughs> and very hipster. In terms of, in terms of literally his look, I mean, you know, his glasses, his hair, his everything. He looks like a 30 something hipster. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that Brutus is a hipster. Yeah. But they do play up that academic look from just from how he's dressed. He's got the glasses and he's wearing tweed. And his house is littered with books, which he hastily shoves under his sofa when he knows people are coming to visit him, which was great. Um, but to go back to the Trump thing for a second. So it's like not unusual for a production of Julius Caesar to decide to be topical by making it about political figures of the day. That's fine. 
I just wasn't sure how far they were pushing this Trump comparison, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Because as someone who's been uh, voraciously consuming American politics, like everyone, I'm sort of worried that I'm drawing connections that necessarily the that the directors didn't necessarily want me to draw. I don't. For instance, Decius Brutus looked a lot like Hope Hicks to me. Oh, I don't know. For me, I definitely wasn't going that far with everyone is a character from Trump's America, and I didn't see the production of the public. But I think from what I read of it, that one went much farther in making their Caesar literally look like Trump. I think. This was just a way to bring a very present populism, which is at the forefront of our minds, into a play to show how that can turn into authoritarian rule and war. I do not feel like it was saying Caesar is Trump. I didn't feel like it was set in the U.S. even. People retained their accents. I think it was just, it was clear, but I think it was the idea of populism, not necessarily solely in the U.S. I mean, all of Europe and Britain itself with Brexit has their own context of far-right populist movements, and this was an easy visual way, the red hats and all, to connect our minds to current politics. What was that? Like, he had a logo that was a bird that felt vaguely Nazi-ish to me, but I wasn't sure what it was. I thought it was an eagle surrounded by a laurel wreath, was it not? I'll, I'll trust you. Okay. It was sort of vague. I mean, I, I'm not, don't quote me, right? It was sort of, it was on everything, but you never really got a close-up on it. Because I guess that, to me, made it link to other kind of a authoritarian yeah. regime just I mean even the red they had a red sort of sheet almost oh that was a flag a flag okay. yeah they do that at you would not know this because you do not go to sporting events Alex oh. <laughs> um, but passing around a flag on top of a crowd is like a thing that they do at rallies or at big sporting events and stuff like that oh. <laughs> Glad to learn something about contemporary society <laughs> from Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, so I guess just the color of that made me think, like, red. On, I mean, there's all kinds of associations, too, that sort of bring it away from Trump that red, like, Russia, or red, the red is also kind of similar to, like, the Nazi red color. Yeah, I mean, watching it here in Germany... I felt like it could have links to the 1930s here or to the AfD party, the current far-right party that just entered parliament. I appreciated that it was current, uh, that it was in modern dress. The guns are always weird, but (laughs) I think they handle guns well. It's just, I, I don't have a problem with the guns. Just all of these lines later on, I'm getting ahead of myself now, but when he's showing the jacket and he's talking about sort of the cuts in the jacket, and it's small, I don't really care, but um, I thought that the contemporary setting was handled well, didn't focus on only one country or society or uh, political leader, but had a very 
topical feel to it. The most interesting part I found about this contemporary setting was less Julius Caesar and more Brutus. And Alex and I were talking about how, on our way out, Alex and I were talking about how they had presented Brutus in this production and how it was unlike any Brutus we'd ever seen. And we'd never, we'd seen, we kept comparing it to the Donmar Warehouse Julius Caesar, in which Brutus is sort of a quintessential Roman. He's the honorable man. But this Brutus is not a man's man. Um, he's sort of a, a, a peevish, glasses-wearing intellectual um, who thinks he knows better than he does and who has no judgment. Yeah, his um, belief to a fault in his own correctness on every issue was more apparent than ever in this production, in my opinion. And I felt so much that he was just mansplaining to Cassius, played by a woman, one of my favorite roles, and someone who I really thought in this production had reason, and then you listen to Brutus just mansplaining over her and rolling his eyes, and and honestly, at some moments, he felt like, I don't know, he felt every much as stupid and overconfident, and not that honorable as anyone else. He didn't... Really, I I came away from this production feeling that everyone is somewhat of a villain and everyone is kind of an overconfident idiot that all of these people, even if they think they were doing something for the right reason, honorable reason, whatever, they're causing huge amounts of war because of the situation they're making poor decisions they're getting people killed i don't buy that anyone here is honorable brutus in this production for me i feel yes he does things from a place of contemplating it all night and thinking he's doing the right thing but um i don't know i didn't care so much it's interesting to see the shift in how they portrayed brutus in the first act versus the second act but we can talk about that later. Um, but which leads to one of the questions that Alex asked on the way out of when we went to see it. Which is, in this production, Cassius is very much running the show. This is Cassius's conspiracy. She brings Brutus in, essentially as a figurehead, to give her some respectability. So Alex's question was, why does she pick Brutus? Why this guy? Why doesn't she pick Casca, who is my favorite person in this entire production, by far? I love her. I want to hang out with her. She's spilling the tea left and right. She's... I don't understand how everyone in Rome does not want to be Casca's best friend. Because I do. I mean, I feel like being Casca's best friend is like Casca would spill the most tea about you. Yeah, but that's, you know, I don't care. I don't care. Anyway, yeah, okay, Casca's not the person to be the figurehead for the conspirators. Um, I feel anyway that Cassius is kind of the one who leads the conspiracy. Uh, I've always felt that, but why the choice of Brutus? Yeah, because he's seen as respectable. I don't know. Because the other people are more hands and he's more books. To balance it out, I'm not sure. What do you guys think? 
to me, what was sort of interesting about this production is I'd never asked that question before. Certainly with the, the Donmore production where Harriet Walter was playing Brutus, you sort of felt like she was just a staple of the community that it seemed obvious that she seemed an obvious choice for a leader. And then when she makes mistakes and she's not as good an orator as Mark Antony, then the feeling was, oh, you know, it's it's that you felt for her because you felt she's the one with the who is honorable and who has a person the, of substance, right? And who has the ideas and who should be in power, but everything things are too much about performance, and so she's not well suited. But I think what they do in this production is. They really separate um, Ben Wishaw's Brutus from politics. Like, even though he's at the rally, he's everything about his environment and who how he behaves is different from everyone else. He is much more, you know, even when we first see him alone, you see him, he's at some kind of cafe and he's drinking wine and you see he just doesn't feel, he's not, you know, he's not the leather jacket wearing... Um, he's very classically ivory tower very very ivory tower and the glasses are part of that the fact that he's always with a book the fact that he um he's kind of bends over and looks down and he takes off his glasses and he uses his hands as a lecturer would and it's very deliberately like as though he's giving a lecture to his class is how he talks to everybody and the fact that he's written a book you feel from the beginning that he has all these ideas and it, but everything is so theoretical. And even when you see him in his house, you see he's got a desk and it's full of books and he's sitting there studying and he's just separate from the reality of, of what's going on with everybody else. And part of that is even just in the way that all of the conspirators come to his house. And before that, we've seen them each pull out guns and we know that they've been plotting this for a while, which I'm not sure I always felt before, but... Certainly in this production, it feels like they've been planning this for a long time. And then they just bring And Kafka him brought him in at the end. At the very end. And so he's not even, you know, he's not even part of the whole conspirator's plan. They just come in and they're like, okay, you're going to be our leader. And we're not going to give you any time to think about it. We're just going to tell you last minute. And so then I think, to me, it felt like all of the mistakes he makes makes sense why like of course he's going to make these mistakes because he thinks that oh well as long as we we killed caesar as long as we give them a reason and we explain it in a you know an academic careful way then everybody will be fine and he doesn't even think about the fact that you know at a funeral is maybe not the time to do this that people aren't going to listen and he thinks that if he just gives a lecture that people will listen and I think even that sort of mansplaininess that you're talking about, Noemi, comes into that he's just used to being, you know, sitting at, standing at the front of the classroom and people listen to him because he's the lecturer. And he kind of expects people to behave that way, too, when he's now a political figure. And it's, I mean, one of the things that you said yesterday um, when we were walking home was Brutus expects people to listen to ideas. And the failure of the conspiracy, the conspiracy sort of fails because they expect ideas to have power and they don't. And looking back on it, it that actually does bring out something really strong in the text that I sort of had never considered quite so sharply before. Like Brutus, by the way, my, pro my, my biggest problem with this Brutus is that he's not a charismatic figure for me. 
You can see why people read his books. You don't see why people would follow him. When he speaks at Caesar's funeral, it's like he's he's almost like, duh, this is obvious. Like, he doesn't take you along with him the way Harriet Walters Brutus does. There's no emotive force behind his words. But Brutus at the funeral talks about liberty and freedom from tyranny. And Mark Antony gets up there and says, he was my friend, faithful and just to me. You know, these are simple and very emotional ideas. And I guess this production brought out the contrast in the way they talk in a way that other productions had not for me. I think I'd always thought of it, certainly within the Harry Walter production, I thought of it as Brutus just being very, not not simple, but just direct. That Brutus is just like, let me tell you the things. Yeah. Um, and if I say it clearly, then then you'll believe me and it will be communicated. And Mark Antony is, well, you're not going to, I have to, as you said, play on your emotions. And I noticed the big difference in their speech styles um, in before, because they say, you know, there are similarities just in the text of it, just like. Even, you know, from line one, I, I can't even remember what Brutus's address is, but, you know, Mark Antony's friends, noblemen. Is it friends? Oh, gosh. This is Friends, Romans, countrymen. That's the one. No, that's Mark Antony. Yeah. That's Mark yeah. Antony. That's, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a famous line, and you hear that, and you, and you sit up and you listen. But I think what this production brought out is... It's not just a, a difference in personality. It's like a complete difference in um, worldview and perspective. That I understand why Brutus is like this because he's an academic and that has a different register. Um, and Mark Antony is, I mean, we can get into all of the class things later, but he, he, Brutus is very clearly kind of upper class and Mark Antony is like more solidly middle class. The costumes do a lot of work here, but Mark Antony is clearly sort of a middle class or even lower middle class guy who's come to money. Right. And so you see him, he's kind of, I'm going to talk to you. And this is even about how they use the microphones, um, which is something you pointed out, M.A., that Brutus gives his whole speech into the microphone and Mark Antony gives part of his speech to the microphone and then he steps away and he's like, I'm going to be real with you, which I still read as a complete performance. But you can see how that's calculated because he's aware that he has to perform for this audience in a way that Brutus has no idea that's part of the job. And it's almost like, I mean, this is another thing that this production brought out that I had never really thought about in in so many words before. Why does Mark Antony go immediately for the emotional register, right? Why does he immediately go for things that people will relate to emotionally? He was my friend, faithful and just to me because he doesn't have an answer to Brutus's liberty argument. If he tries to fight Brutus on his own terms, he's going to lose. The only thing he can do to get people on his side, and it works really well, is to make them think of Caesar not as a figure that impacts on their lives, but how Antony thinks about Caesar. Does a Don Draper change the conversation? Exactly. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, and Antony is smart enough to know that. The costumes, by the way, that I'm talking about here, we first see Antony, who is like a, you know, a sort of good-looking mid-40s guy, come out on stage in a tracksuit and sneakers. 
this is not the uniform of the good of the good looking mid 40s man. So immediately you're like, oh, you're clearly you're telling me something about class here. This is a fancy tracksuit. It's probably an Adidas tracksuit that costs a lot of money and it's got your name on the back. But it's a tracksuit. And then later on in the set it scene, immediately before Caesar gets stabbed, Antony is standing there in a suit and it looks like a normal suit. But I couldn't take my eyes off his fucking tie. It's this totally awful, weirdly 80s taupe tie with a swirly design in the middle. And it's something that's not outré in the sense that it looks unmasculine, but it would be picked with someone who had who had no taste and who had never been who had never had someone to point out, oh, this doesn't look like where you're this doesn't fit with where your milieu, you know? And so while Antony himself doesn't carry himself like a sort of hackney boy made good, the costumes do a lot of the heavy lifting in establishing him as someone who has not grown up with the social cues of dress. Actually, I'm not even sure that I would say that he doesn't carry himself that way because I think he's much more loose and kind of a little bit hunched, whereas Brutus is very proper. And Ben Wishaw does not straighten his back for the entire play. Brutus's posture is perennially hunched, but that's because of his character. Yeah, but it's not hunched in a in a slouch. It's hunched in a I've been bending over books, and it's still it's kind of stiff the way he moves. Which is very, which is sort of, you know, how you think of upper class or academics as opposed to the sort of more, I could get into a fist fight, Mark Antony. And I'm thinking that, which I hadn't even thought about before, but if you think about Mark Antony gets introduced at the beginning during the rock concert scene. And at that point, the stage is not particularly elevated, I don't think. It's like maybe a foot above the floor. Um, in the rock concert scene, it's, it's like three feet above the floor. Is it? Is it that much? Yeah. Okay. But it, because you can see the bent feet are at sort of at mid chest height for most of the audience. Okay. So it's, but it's still one of the, sh- the lower stages because even I think as soon as Brutus is sitting at the, that table, like the first, once the rally is over, you can see the audience standing there and now they're resting their arms on there or they're, they all have to look up and their necks are bent upwards. And so. I hadn't even thought of this, but they're setting it up from the beginning that Mark Antony is sort of at our level. And uh, Brutus is basically, you have to look up at him as though, you know, as as an academic or as somebody of upper class. or And it's almost as though Brutus expects that to be enough for people to listen to him because he's, because they always have to look up to look at him. And Brutus sort of takes it for granted that he's correct and seems a little annoyed that people aren't listening to him in a way that Mark Antony never does. Mm. But I think, but that, I don't, I agree, but I think they're also in different positions because I think, especially the way this production sets things up, Brutus, I think as soon as, as soon as they tell him you're going to be our leader, he starts to have a sense of confidence as though he knows how to lead. Because at first he's like, oh, I don't know if I should be your leader. And they're like, no, you can do this, Brutus. And then all of a sudden he believes that. And then now it's his role to direct things. But Mark Antony feels set up as a sort of Cassius counterpoint to me. That he he's not looking for he's not looking for a position of rank, but he is looking for power. And so he doesn't necessarily need people to listen to him as the leader 
so much as he needs to be able to subtly direct them. So he doesn't, and he, there's no reason that people would listen to him unless he's convincing, because he isn't the leader. And you get that, oh, that's so interesting. You get the precarity of Mark Antony's position so well in the scene between the conspirators and Mark Antony when Caesar's, when Mark Antony discovers Caesar's body. Okay, what do you mean by that? I mean, because if you play Mark Antony as, like, yet another citizen of Rome, sort of roughly on a class par with Brutus, then he ha- Mark Antony has a certain stability he can go back to. But if Mark Antony is, like, this poor guy, or this, you know, lower middle class guy, who attached himself to Caesar and is riding the wave of Caesar's coattails. When Caesar dies, suddenly he's essentially in a free fall. And he needs to immediately placate the conspirators so they don't kill him as well. Yeah, you see that in the scene where he's shaking their hands, and then after, as he's apologizing to Caesar about doing it. That's a really good way to put it. I hadn't thought about it in that way before when I'd seen other productions of this play, but it's clearer in this one. I think for me, too, I, that speaking of the shaking the hands and the bloody hands, I think this is the first production where I thought, oh, Mark Antony knows that the conspirators are going to go kill Caesar. Um, I'm curious if Noemi <laughs> saw this, because Emmy was, did not agree with me on this. Um, so, Noemi, you're the deciding vote. No pressure. But there's this, at Caesar's, I guess, crowning event there's this little conversation that brutus and casca and cassius have where they're saying oh i think i think they know about us i think people know that we're gonna that something's gonna happen and mark antony is pretty close to them at the time and so i kind of drew the connection that oh maybe mark antony knows um he knows and he's gonna let them kill caesar and then when he shows up later there's this very you know, he shows up as they're all literally covering their hands in blood. And we get to see him show up and his hands are clean. And then he lets them get bloody in private around the conspirators to placate them. But then he he's in a position where he can make this emotional speech about Caesar that Brutus can't. Because Brutus couldn't just stand there and go, oh, Caesar, I loved Caesar. <laughs> we killed him. I thought that conversation was because of Papilius Lena, and I also buy that. Uh, the I hope you succeed in your enterprise today, I'm paraphrasing, is the line that he says to Cassius, and then Cassius starts freaking out, and they have this quick conversation. I... Yeah, I didn't really see that as Antony knowing in advance. I saw it as this sort of rising paranoia and pressure of are we going to act and everything has to go right. I saw it that way more. Yeah, I didn't think Anthony knew. I mean, that's Anthony. I didn't think he knew. And I mean, it's an interesting theory. I could keep an eye out for it if I were to watch it again, but that's not how I felt watching it this time. I guess my thinking, like, I I agree with you that that's certainly how I thought of I don't know. I guess that's how I thought of the line in the past as being particularly applicable to that one character. But I guess just 
I don't know why I, I think it was just because of the way it was staged that there were so many other people around and they're looking around paranoid that I thought, oh, maybe they mean that like the secret has gotten out. And that I guess then it doesn't necessarily mean that Mark Antony does know, but there's certainly the prospect that perhaps he knows. And you don't see Mark Ant- or he knows that it's a possibility and you don't see Mark Antony say intervening when the woman shows up with Caesar's letter that's warning him about the conspirators. So if Mark Antony had some inkling of it, he's certainly not letting it on. And I guess it had never occurred to me that he might have an inkling of it. Yeah, it depends what kind of guy Mark Antony is. There are warnings throughout. There's Beware of the Ides of March. There's all of this going on. So does he have any sort of feeling that something could go wrong on this day? Is he the kind of person who listens to that? If so, or if not, does it matter? Would he be okay with waiting and not taking action to prevent it? That would make Mark Antony less someone who truly was Caesar's friend and loved him and did this all out of love for him and more someone who is a political opportunist sort of flying on Caesar's coattails. I don't necessarily think, think those things are mutually exclusive, though. Because if we have a vulnerable Antony, if we have an Antony who who only owes his position to Caesar, but remember, Caesar is ill, right? Like, this production establishes Caesar as an older man, and they have him in a wheelchair on a respirator at one point. Like, this is a Caesar who's on in the decline and may well die at any moment. Like, if we see Antony as a guy who's like, everything I owe, I owe to the life of this man, and he could go any time, and I need to make sure I have an exit strategy. If he sees the conspirators coming to kill Caesar, he may genuinely love Caesar, but he may also be like, look, that guy doesn't have a lot of time left. I need to make sure whoever comes after him thinks well of me. Interesting. One funny thing about this production is, as you mentioned, Caesar is quite a bit older. After this instance where he falls and foams at the mouth and we see him brought back on stage in his wheelchair... This may be a dumb question, but it does make me wonder why the conspirators felt they needed to act so quickly. Isn't he going to die in, like, a month anyway? I mean, he really felt... He he was strong in his everyman-ness, his charisma. All of this brought him to a larger-than-life public figure, for sure, but he did seem pretty old sick well so I mean that could be another reason for Mark Antony like that could be an argument for Mark Antony's opportunism and that if he figure well Caesar's gonna die somehow and at least if he dies today I have a plan and I can use their callousness against them and I can you know use that to get his what's Octavius on my side because, you know, I loved him. Whereas if he just let, if Julius Caesar just died, he could be completely ousted. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I guess this production made me think, I mean, it's partly because I just watched the Wolf Hall miniseries, but <laughs> this production did make me think a lot about Wolf Hall and about, I guess Mark Antony kind of reminded me of Thomas Cromwell and who basically becomes an agent of Henry VIII, even before Cardinal Wolsey dies. And he also, you know, he backs Anne, but he's 
aware of the fact that he can drop her and is willing to drop her as soon as that's not a good opportunity for him. And I think the first thing that made me think about that is the way that you know Caesar has this bad dream and he has to get, and he gets talked out of it by Cass. Decius Brutus. No, Decius Brutus. Okay. Who oh, is strongly right. implied he had an affair with. Right. The Hope Hicks looking girl. Right, right, right. The sexy um, lady. And <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then that's that's the first thing that Thomas Cromwell does for Henry VIII is he gets called in when Henry VIII has a bad dream. And Thomas Cromwell tells him, you know, it doesn't mean what you think it does. And calms him and then that's kind of what cements their relationship and obviously Decius Brutus is not trying to cement a relationship with Caesar but I guess just that idea of, of that kind of manipulation made me think a lot about Wolf Hall and these sort of Cromwell-esque characters especially because Cassius is so obviously running the show and then Mark Antony doesn't have a group of followers to start but he also is kind of manipulating and turning it into the Mark the Mark Antony show, I think Hilary Mantel sort of described Thomas Cromwell as he's 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 climbing the social ladder, but unlike everybody else, he brings his own ladder. And I think that's kind of what Mark Antony's doing. Like he he's bringing his own ladder by making this speech at the at the funeral because he could be completely ousted. Um, but he's like, well, I'm going to change the rules. I'm really interested in. <laughs> What they were trying to do with Caesar's relationships with women. The lines about Cassie's having a lean and hungry look because she thinks too much. And how women who think too much are dangerous. Such ones are dangerous is a line, but it seems like women shouldn't think. How they talk about her body, you know, how she should be fatter and all this stuff. She's too skinny, basically. Too slim. It really had this whole meaning that you don't get when Cassius is played by a man. Um, it was super sex sexist and um, really messed up. Caesar, as we've established, is super old. And then he, Calpurnia is like 25. This beautiful, much younger woman. I mean, I'd say she's like late 20s, yeah. early 30s. Yeah, at most. I was getting a sort of Wendy Dang, Rupert Murdoch vibe there. It was, I don't know what they were doing with the direction there, but I don't think I've ever seen a Calpurnia played more annoying, hysterical, and unbelievable as this one. Oh, really? I didn't find that at all. Why did you find her annoying? I found her quite, I found her like totally understandable. I thought she seemed remarkably sensible. I think that once in the scene where she is talking about Caesar shouldn't go to the Capitol because of her dream, you have this like overly hysterical woman, and yeah, I I've never seen it played to that level of hysteria. I don't think. So I I kind of want to pick up on something you were you were saying there about. About the who who the women are, um, and it's interesting too that it's a woman who talks him down about the dream and convinces him that his wife is being silly, because I wonder his paramour, in fact, right? <laughs> well, maybe that's part of why she does it, but um, yes, that's why they send Decius Brutus because Decius Brutus is like I can make him come out even if he doesn't want to. 
But I mean, I think it's interesting who, who, where they did gender swapping and what the purpose of that was. And maybe that answers the question as to why they don't let just wait for Caesar to die. Because Cassius and Casca, who are running the show of the conspirators, are both women. And then Desi's Brutus is also a woman. And she's sort of the next most running the show, I guess, because of how crucial she is to getting Caesar to do what she wants. And I wonder if one of the reasons that they decide to kill him is because they figure if we get rid of him, there's a power vacuum that we can fill. And But if we wait for him to die, then we have no control over the successor. And then, who, you know, the successor is supposed to be this young military man who is maybe going to be harder to kill and get rid of than Caesar. Yeah. I just want to take this moment to recognize the Decius Brutus slash Casca from the Donmar Warehouse production. Oh, yeah. The Donmar Warehouse combined both of those roles. Karen Dunbar was, like, magnificent. This yeah. Casca was great. Karen Dunbar, like, stole the show. Yeah. <laughs> she was amazing. Like, insanely amazing. So good. I mean, I love, I, I think that the Donmar one is brilliant. But I think it's also, it has bits that are a bit uneven. And I think I found this production really clean. One of the things that's interesting about this production for me is like the Donmar had standout performances and then some stuff that was subpar, whereas none of this is super shiny to me, you know? There's no one other than maybe Cassius, but maybe Cassius, who I was like, wow, you're scene stealing. Casca. Casca was, okay, a little bit. A little bit. Casca was amazing and I loved it. I think they were just all really good. I didn't have the same sort of, ah, you were really good, but I wasn't totally bowled over by you. I was just kind of like, oh, they're all really great. And I think, I think even just the fact that there was this rock concert, so I was sort of like jazzed by the time they started, you know, speaking Shakespeare. I was like, oh, I, I understand everything they're saying. I get everything that's going on. And I just found it so lucid and clear. And I heard some of the lines in ways that I hadn't quite heard them before just because of the context that they were set in or somewhat the rhythms. And I think I agree that none of the actors who were watching and thinking this performance is radical, but I think, but I also think that's kind of what Nick Heitner does. And that's part of what, one of the things I said about the Rory Kinnear Hamlet and why I think it's good is it wasn't just that Rory Kinnear was amazing. It was that Nick Heitner put him in this really great world so that everything that Rory Kinnear did made sense and worked and I think I mean what we were talking about as we're leaving is how this was a really three-dimensional Brutus um but it's not like Ben Wishaw is in a vacuum carrying the show it's he's a three-dimensional Brutus but part of the way he's able to be a three-dimensional Brutus is because Nick Heitner has created this world where Brutus and put all the things in so that we can see how Brutus is an academic and then he fits into that world and goes I am the academic you expect me to be because of the things you see around me. And I am in contrast to Caesar and populism. But it's not all, it's not like he ha all on his own. That's partly how he has the set and the costumes and everything else working with him. And so he's all, he's also like a more didactic Brutus than I've seen before. Very much so. And, yeah. and that's just partly, and so he delivers lines in interesting ways that are only possible because of the production choices around him. And I think, 
I mean, Rory Kinnear also just happened to be like an emotional Hamlet that then sort of made me feel and the particular production choices sort of hit me close. But I think why I love that was because Heitner did the same thing there as he does here where the the performance and the production are so in sync. Never are they working against each other. Noemi, you've actually been in this play. Was there anything that you saw differently or that you felt this production brought out for you in a way that you hadn't thought about before? It's kind of what I mentioned earlier, and it has to do with what you were just speaking about, Alex, about how they very specifically thought about which roles they were going to gender bend. But I really felt the masculinity and the... Yeah, the the lack of innocence, the brutality of politics, the brutality of of a political system in which people are fighting for power at all costs, and the fact that at the end of the day, oppressors come in different forms, and villains and murderers can look like an intellectual or the guy you go golfing with, and they will ignore the better suggestions of people around them because they are women or they are inferior to them or they think they're right. They will arrogantly make decisions that lead to their downfall. And the main thing I came away, because Julius Caesar is my favorite Shakespeare play. I really love it. And it's not most people's favorite Shakespeare play, but I, I love it. I think it's fascinating to see how... Cassius sort of is convincing everyone else to set this conspiracy in motion that leads to the action of the entire play. I think the friendship between Brutus and Cassius and the friendship between Antony and Caesar are really interesting in terms of their multidimensionality. You see this argument scene between Brutus and Cassius, which I thought was very well done where they're going through this huge range of emotions to, if you hate me this much, then kill me right now, Cassius is saying. They're, to back down to, okay, we're going to go and we're going to fight together, to, in the end, both of them killing themselves. Brutus more cowardly than anyone else, having his boy servant kill him. And I just thought, I see this, I see, Brutus's arrogance, I saw it all in a way, I, I, I don't know, I left like, wow, I'm really disgusted with both sides. There are not good people on all sides, there are bad people on all sides, and I think it was very well done in terms of showing a cycle of populism and politics, a cycle of history repeating itself, where it's never going to lead to someone actually good being in power. Yeah, it left me feeling very cynical. I think it did it very well. I think it's true um but that's what i took away from this production more so than i ever have from any other production of julius caesar yeah i think that i think that's really interesting just the idea that never that someone good is never going to be in power because because of the populism because i think with what i found in the donmar production and also just what i had thought about when i had read the text is that the reason why they keep cycling through these things is because power corrupts that Brutus feels seems good and he's honorable but then you wonder there are all these parallels between him and Caesar and you wonder you know is he going to be any better 
you know, was Caesar, because we only meet Caesar after he's, you know, in this position of power, and maybe Caesar was just as honorable as Brutus. We don't know. And there's that ambiguity within the text. And then there's also the same, that ambiguity that, you know, is Brutus, would Brutus be any better? And then when he gets overthrown, you know, is this any better than it would have been before? And so just through almost like the reasoning for why it's not any better is, is a little different, I think, than I had seen it before. But I think that that still totally works. Like it's totally supported by the text. It's not like they're adding this onto a play and making it up. But I just had never seen it that way before. I'd sort of seen it as, you know, the the crown and the hollow crown and the how just the mere fact of being in power changes you. I have one thing to add to that, and then I want to ask Noemi about Cassius. Because we had a lot of stuff to say about Cassius, but I feel like Noemi has more to say about Cassius than either of us do. I just wanted to, like, the ending, literally the last moment of this, production is so striking for precisely that cynicism that you identify, Noemi. You're absolutely right. Um, because the last moment of this production is Octavius in spotlight, covered in balloons, um, raising his hands to accept the cheers of a victorious crowd. Exactly like Caesar. Like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But Noemi this must have been awesome for you because this production really spotlights Cassius in a way that I haven't seen in other productions. And I think this is the, I think this is the most honorable take on Cassius I've ever seen. I, I don't know what I can say, honestly. Do I have a lot to say about Cassius? Maybe. Is it all super biased? Yes, because I just love Cassius and I, totally think this production is right to spotlight Cassius this much. I think Cassius is pragmatic and aware of the world around and wants to gain power, but is also the smartest one about it. And I think this was true in this production. She's smarter than everyone around her and better. So why isn't she in charge at the end? Um, I don't know. Ah, because, yeah, she's a woman and it was never going to happen anyway, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. This production does bring those gender dynamics to the forefront, but also shows just Cassius as an extremely strong player in this game, if you will. Because I, that was just my stupid reference, because she's played by an actor who has also been in Game of Thrones. Oh, that's true. I didn't even... I was like, where, where do I know that lady from? Oh, there we go. Um... What did you think about the scene between Cassius and Brutus in the second act where Cassius is like, how dare you accuse me of taking bribes? And Brutus is like, how dare you not give me money to pay my soldiers? What did I think of what part of it? What did you think of how Cassius was portrayed in that scene? Because normally I feel like Cassius's denials are a little unconvincing. Like, me take bribes? Never happen. <laughs> but in this one... This Cassius seemed genuinely sincere, I thought. And then says that it was a messenger, he was but a fool that brought my answer back. I honestly, in this scene, have always believed this is such a beautiful scene because you have two characters who go through a whole range and arc of an argument where they are both fully convinced that they are right. And I think in some ways they both are right, you know, in their own minds. And what's so fascinating 
is how these two people on the same side can still get into this almost, like, this argument could have devastating consequences. They don't end up succeeding much further as an army, because the next scene is everyone killing themselves and getting <laughs> the army getting destroyed, but regardless of that, if we look at this scene, this argument, there's so many places where they could get splintered, where their entire factions could get splintered, where where Cassius could kill herself. You really see so many moments in this scene, and it goes through all of this, and I feel like both characters are strong and proud and right in a lot of ways, and I'm not interested in a production that clearly tells us from the beginning that this character is always going to be right and this character is never right. Why is that interesting? That's not how the world works. People we disagree with can be right about some things, and people we love dearly and agree with can have really, really, really terrible, wrong thoughts on certain things. And here it it shows you that yeah, maybe Cassius yeah, I don't know, is also good in these ways. Maybe Cassius has a point here. It's not just clear that Brutus is the one who is honorable and will always win and be right, and I think the ambiguity is more true. Jumping off of that a little bit, I wanted to ask both of you how you felt about the relatively bleak portrayal of Caesar. Because in the text, there's Caesar gets some lines that you could either, where you could either choose to bring out this sort of noble man who perhaps is a little arrogant and has been perhaps begun to become corrupted version of Caesar. Or you can totally downplay that and have Caesar be exactly as evil as Cassius says he is. And I feel like this production went the Caesar is evil route. I mean, uh, so it's interesting because I, I, I kind of thought that too, and now I'm rethinking that and wondering if that's maybe different because... I'm thinking the two things that really stand out to me is one is the do this slogan. And then also when Caesar is justifying his not going to court or it's not court, whatever it is, the Senate house. And gosh, I'm going to not remember the line, which was just like a big thing on no holds barred. So embarrassing again. But he basically, but he says something about like, you know, why, what's my reason? Well, it's my will. Oh my god, that was so funny. My friend and I were the only people dying of laughter in the cinema. All of these other Germans around us are just sitting there proper. And we're just sitting there. He's like, it is a problem with my will. I will not come. <laughs> so great. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, but I think that that's true. Is I think they really, really brought those those moments out and I'm just thinking now that because of what we said about Brutus that in a way there is that parallel because Brutus suddenly just expects people to listen to him I mean he's not as bald-faced about it in the sense that he doesn't actually say well I'm Brutus and I said it so I'm right but he just but he does have that same expectation he just has a more academic version of it and so now this is making me question like you know is Caesar just like an old man who's not that Lear was good or anything, but, you know, he was used to being surrounded by yes-men. Like, is it that Caesar has now been surrounded by enough yes-men that he thinks that his will is everything? 
or is he more evil? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I did not feel like he was evil, but maybe that's part of me missing the first 10 minutes because of a truly evil asshole bus driver. But I did not feel like he was evil. I did not feel like he was a great leader. I don't feel like literally anyone is a great leader, and I think this production was showing us that. I did not feel like he was evil, but I did not feel like he was necessarily honorable. He was just there doing this. He was playing his music. But do this is such a toxic slogan, people. Like, when Caesar says do this, like, you don't have an entire crowd of people going, yeah, when Caesar says do this, absolutely I will do that. That's like, it's making authoritarianism into a rallying cry. Totally, totally. Well, but, so I guess I have two two things on that. One is that I think I think you're right, Naomi, that part of what happens is because they spend so much time establishing him as a Trump figure before the text even begins, that you're already... You know, and I, unless you're a right-wing Trumper watching this, but that's definitely not who their target audience is. Then you're all, you're set to to hate them because you're like, oh well, they're making parallels with Trump and all these other people I don't like. So I, you know, like you couldn't make Trump if you I sorry you couldn't make Caesar Hitler and then be like, but he's you know actually kind of a reasonable guy. And you know, Trump isn't Hitler, but I mean, it's it's the same. It's a similar sort of. You know, this gut feeling of, I do not like, I cannot like this guy. I am, I'm, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with it. And I'm against this guy from the start. Yeah, totally did not have that feeling. (laughs) Probably because I missed the beginning. (laughs) And I think the other thing is that, and I hadn't really thought about this, but in a way the production is itself, the way it's designed and the way it brings the audience in, is it is itself an advocate of do this because what are the the people in the stalls doing but doing exactly what they're told they're they're herded then whatever you know whatever they're put in front of that's what whatever's put in front of them that's what they're meant to root for so first it's caesar and then it's like caesar caesar and then suddenly brutus and the conspirators are in front of them and then it's like oh well this is exciting and you could hear caesar's rally continuing off stage in the background and suddenly that's not in front of us what's in front of us is brutus and so we're like well that's here so we're gonna do this because it's here i'm gonna be cynical and say something that i don't even fully agree with right now but with that preface i think that not that theaters that are not traditionally immersive companies that are not punch drunk who are doing work like this, probably are giving interviews all over the place about how exciting and thrilling it is to be doing this immersive work, and you have the whole mob and the whole crowd there, and blah blah blah. But also, can I just say, we were watching a live broadcast of it, and mostly the crowd was a bunch of people who were just kind of like staring haplessly, and what if someone in the audience actually were shouting along against or for Brutus or Antony at the funeral scene. What if people tried to get really engaged? I'm sure that the eight stage manager people, I'm not sure, but I think, I think they would be like, no, this is not the time for you to talk, blah, blah, blah. 
I think that it's really exciting. Don't get me wrong. I think it would have been super fun to be down there with him. I think it's really fun for the actors because they do have a mass of humans, of people. I think that's super exciting. But do I think that they actually want to change the way that people interact with the theater other than they have to move around and be... I don't, I don't know. I'm being a little cynical now, but I don't think that someone getting up on one of those platforms like those planted hecklers, the younger actors in the play mainly, I think if someone did that, they would be carted off and... Maybe, I, I don't know. What if there was a production? That, that's not what this show is. That's not what this show is. It's it's a pinky dip into immersive theater without actually being immersive or interactive enough that the audience has an influence. The audience becomes part of the play, but it doesn't influence the events. But I guess, I don't know. So that's, that's a really interesting point because I wonder... How much of that is people just behaving like, oh, I think I'm at the theater, so I'm staring up in awe. And how much of that is also the point of the production that the crowd is... Fundamentally compliant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it's I think it's both. Because I think it uses people's rules of, I am in a theater, to show the crowd as fundamentally compliant. And I think it's well done, and that's part of it, probably. But I also just think it would be interesting to see a production of Julius Caesar where the mob and the crowd and the senators actually can influence events of the play. But now I'm talking about things that aren't traditional stagings and something totally different. And that's not what we would be seeing on NT Live anyway. So it'll be you're 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 right, I mean I guess it would be interesting to see this same production done like maybe in translation where it could be freer. Or I don't know, something where, as Noemi was saying, where people would feel more comfortable shouting it. The audience would feel comfortable shouting because, yeah, that was the interesting thing about that Richard III is because it's in translation, it sort of frees them up to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And Richard goes off book and he sings Eminem lyrics and then he talks to the audience and is like, you thought that was Shakespeare, but it's not, it's Eminem. And then he goes... At one point, apparently, he urinated on stage. Oh, only in one... One night, because he didn't when I was there, and I was comparing notes with people on all the other nights, and they all said it was only that one night. <laughs> so apparently only when inspiration takes it. Yeah, because, you know, you really can only pee on stage in Germany if you have a very good reason. It's just been done so much, it's not interesting anymore. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, it's so... <laughs> it's so... That, like... Yeah, it's it's um it's like really again. Alex, you and I are going to Germany to visit Noemi because apparently theater is exciting there. Yeah. Oh my god, we need to. I know we have to do this. This is like my number one like theater thing we have to do. <laughs> I guess that's why I'm sitting here being like, what if they actually interact with the audience members? Oh, and that's another thing. Because they had all these people on the ground. But I don't want anyone who was at the theater in all of the other seats not on the ground to feel left out. So a word for them. There are hella other people. It's not just people standing next to the stage. There are a bunch of other people. And when you see this, when you feel this, 
is in the soliloquies, which are often delivered sort of traditionally up and out to the audience. But in the filmed version, we are watching the only members of the audience we see are right next to them. And it looks like the actors are ignoring their actual audience to soliloquy into the air. And it feels stupid and ridiculous. It feels like they are not, it feels like we have this whole crowd there and they are not talking to them at all. I had not thought about it that. It was so You're strange. Right. In my notes, I have this, I'm like, I'm sorry, but who are you talking to? Who the fuck are you talking to? <laughs> to who are you soliloquizing? Because, and, and if this were happening in a theater in Berlin, also, not only would they be talking to the actors who are right next to them, but Brutus would be like, you know, he'd sit on the edge of that stage thing and he'd be like, he'd start talking about whatever book he's reading or whatever Brutus soliloquies about. And he'd be like, you know, and so my name's Ben, um, but I actually, I really identify a lot with Brutus because a lot of times I stay up late at night too, reading books. And trying to decide what to do. Should I take this role or that role? Should I really have played Q and James Bond? Blah, blah, blah. Like, this would happen in a theater in Berlin. For sure, I have seen these things happen. They happen all the time. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So this was, like, not radical when I saw this in Richard III. Yeah, it was like, just, oh, my God! Yeah, this is just... we were doing this production. So, like, as a slight counterpoint to that, or, like... I mean, I, I love everything you said, knowing me, so... Yes. <laughs> but I guess, um, as you were saying that, you know, Julius Caesar is your favorite play, one of the things that I was thinking about is what really struck me when I read it is how how quick it is, how it really goes, that there, there aren't the same kind of, I'm just going to pontificate speeches, as you see in, like, most other Shakespeare plays, that it's a lot of, like, clipped, it's very modern in that way, a lot of sort of fast dialogue and the whole thing it takes place over the course of like two days basically well we're not totally clear on how long the civil war lasts that's true but i think something that i felt in this production and and is maybe an argument for why you want to have control over the timing and not allow brutus to just start having a philosophical discussion about stalin and whether the book he's reading about stalin is you know a reasonable account or if he's been reading the wrong books but is because I think I felt in this production just how fast everything was and I felt the machinery of how fast it was going and part of that was just the way the way the whole all of the conspirators file into Brutus's home and you feel like there's a whole machinery that's going on here that's been in progress for a while and that's well oiled and now they're going and Brutus has that speech about how like he can't sleep because they just planted this idea in him and the time between the idea and the doing is restless. Like to a little kingdom, basically, yeah. Yeah, I'm not quoting properly. I don't know this play well enough to quote it properly. but And uh, and so I think part one of the things that this production does really well is show you how things are sort of moving and you feel... Even just the way that the stage goes up and down and it's all very smooth, you sort of feel the things are in motion and maybe you even feel 
you might even be able to make an argument about like the fate about fate and like the Ides of March that just the way everything sort of keeps proceeding and there isn't something to interrupt them sort of seems it of a piece with the with the with the text itself. And the tempo was certainly a strength of this production. I I agree. It all seemed like there had been so much planning before with the conspiracy. Then this gets put into action. The next steps are sort of the war did feel very quick, and it felt like it. It felt like this. Yeah, it all felt like it happened very quickly. The end of the play felt so quick. It was just like, oh, now everyone's shooting themselves. Like, whoop! It's like you didn't even have to shoot yourself. Yeah, it felt almost like Cymbeline esque. <laughs> I was. I don't know. It was. It was a little ridiculous. I. I was wondering um, because I haven't reread it in a while, and I was like, did they cut anything, or does it really end this quickly? Because really, I was just like, okay, they just had this big argument scene, great scene, love that scene. Um, okay, now I guess things aren't going so well, and Brutus made like a small mistake, but now Cassius and Turbonius just killed themselves, and now Brutus is making, and I'm like, shit, like, wow, that was fast, and oh, and now Octavius is already in power, like, damn, like, I haven't even finished this sip of champagne that I snuck into the cinema yet. <laughs> <laughs> Strong choice, no, I mean, strong choice. So I'm proud. <laughs> anyway. Should prove. So, yeah, it was, it was really fast, and I felt it as well with the conspirators coming to pick up Caesar. But can I just take a moment and ask, is that, like, normal that they, like, powwow over to the Senate together? Because that was highly suspicious. Like, if I was Caesar, even with all the other, like, hey, we're all going to come and make sure you come to work today. Like, no reason. Rise and shine. It's eight in the morning. Totally normal. Everything's normal here. We're just coming to escort you to work like we do all it of the time. hella suspicious. Like, if you just bring sexy Decius Brutus lady, totally into it. But I was so suspicious of all of them. I guess Caesar was just blinded because of sexy, which I understand. I th- I think it was a production choice too. Like I don't think that that's actually in the stage directions. And my recollection of how the Donmar did it was it was just it was just her. They they weren't all there, but they were all there at the rally at the beginning. So maybe they really do travel as his posse, his entourage. I mean, they do in this production, but I genuinely think Noemi's right that this is not this is like a choice yeah it no was... no I agree but yeah it's definitely a choice it's just a question of if that's a choice that they travel in an entourage does that then make them suspicious when they're all standing there like come on go to work yeah <laughs> I mean they it's... don't go to work we can't kill you today it's not like they're getting like brunch before work every single day like I don't see them being like okay here's your cappuccino like extra sugar, right? Right, Caesar? <laughs> like Because obviously Sugar wink wink. Yeah, obviously <laughs> if they were getting French, then they would have just poisoned him, right? Right. In his No no no, that's true. not honorable. Ah, uh, that's true. And Brutus is an honorable man. So were they all. All honorable men. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> like I gotta say, Brutus is like so fucking honorable. You know how I know? Because it says that in his Twitter bio. It says, I'm an honorable man. So, like, here, he tweeted it. 
Oh, wait. Mark Antony tweets, like, quote tweets Brutus. <laughs> like, see? I know he's an honorable man because he tweeted it. <laughs> but also, what does Mark Antony say? I'm looking at my notes. <laughs> I only speak right on. He says at one point, and he said it so great. He's, you know, he has this, he goes, I only speak right on. And it's like, that's my Twitter bio. Like, I only speak right on, but <laughs> Oh my god, no worry. Please change your Twitter bio with me. <laughs> I only speak right on. I don't even know what my Twitter bio is currently. Some bullshit, probably. So, I mean, the other thing that's sort of fast in this production is, and getting back to that idea about the guns, is how they kill Caesar. Because, I mean, he's basically dead after the first shot, or maybe the first two shots. But everybody still shoots, and then Brutus even has a moment to decide, am I going to shoot? And his bullet, you know, so he's just dead. It's superfluous. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like classic Brutus. <laughs> yeah. At least classic Brutus of this production. Well, and I think, I mean, going... I, I guess nobody has more to say about that, but <laughs> uh, I was going to open that up to discussion, but you guys do not seem interested, so I'll move on. Because um, I think when noise and, you know, like Ben wish I could get down on the stage and be like, I'm Ben and I identify with this character. Okay, he doesn't because... have to do that. I'm just saying he would do that if he were in Germany. No, 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 I know, but I guess, but I, as you were, as you were talking about that, I mean, one of the things that, that came to my mind is, this Brutus feels very Ben Wishaw. Like, something about this Brutus, like, is Paddington Bear. <laughs> really? Well, like, the thing that... Brutus, at first I was irritated by this production because I liked Harriet Walters' Brutus as a person. And so I was almost offended that I found this Brutus irritating. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> and it took me a while to appreciate how three-dimensional his performance is. Like, he's got the mannerisms right. This is a fully realized character from his physical posture to the way he moves his hands when he talks. Yeah, I think he did a great job. I also think he is annoying. Like, this production took that choice, and I appreciate it, because now I just believe it's true. I'm, I just, I left that production, I was like, yeah, Honorable men? No, more like annoying men. Like, so are they all. Literally all of them. And the, and the only one who will tell you the truth about that is Casca. <laughs> I guess, I, and I'm not saying that Ben Wishaw is annoying, because I love Ben Wishaw, like, a lot. But there's definitely something about this Brutus that also calls to mind, to me, his Richard II. Just the sort of... I mean, Richard II was like, no, drama queen, I'm going to take forever to give you this crown. But just that sort of, like, detachment from reality and the kind of flightiness almost of him, and almost the, the sort of softness that, I mean, Ben Wishaw, it, I mean, I don't mean he's, I don't mean Brutus is cuddly like Paddington Bear, but just that he's, like, so not, he's so not suited to this job, and it's so obvious just from everything he does. He's, he's someone who stepped outside his proper sphere because his ego has taken him there. And this just, and, you know, and even when Ben Wishaw played Hamlet when he was 23, because Ben Wishaw, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, his, his Hamlet was like very emotional, very cryy and very, I just want to see my mommy. I just want to go home. And that also, okay, 
him. He's giving me dirty looks. I'm exaggerating a lot here. It was significantly better than that. No, 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 no. It, it was. I, I'm, I'm trying to distill it down to its two-dimensional essence, even though it was very much Wait, you a guys, three-dimensional portrayal. You have you saw it? We saw a recording of it. Okay, I was going to say, because that was in 2003, and I was literally nine. <laughs> oh my god, you're so, you're such a youth. No, I, I would like to point out, I am now officially older than Ben Warshaw was when he played Hamlet, so. So I failed. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't seen that production. It's, I mean, it's interesting and worth seeing, although I think its greatness has been overblown just because people, it's just kind of like the, the fact that Ben Wishaw was 23 and could play Hamlet, like, and well, has turned it into a, this production was amazing, and it was more like, this production was fine, Ben Wishaw was really good, and Rory Kinnear was an amazing Laertes. <laughs> the only Hamlet I've ever seen where I was like, when's Laertes coming back? Come on! Laertes, come back! Um, <laughs> anyway, where was I going with this? I was just going to say that this felt like, like in the way that we think about Hamlet's as being sort of, because I've just been listening to our our episode that we did like two years ago on Papa's. Oh, many, many Hamlet episodes. Yeah, but this was on Papa Siedu's Hamlet, and we were talking where they set it in West Africa because he split his childhood in Ghana, and I guess. And, and the UK, and I was thinking that this this feels very much like a Ben Wishaw Brutus. Like, you wouldn't have necessarily, necessarily done this particular Brutus with another actor. It just feels very, like, this is a Ben Wishaw. And I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, like, what would it be like if they cast Michelle Fairley as Brutus? Totally different, right? I think she could do that role, too. But I think it would be a totally different play. <laughs> you guys are like, uh, okay... Well, I was just going to say, I'm thinking about, I was thinking about, you know, because M.A. keeps talking about how we keep going back to the Donmar production. And I actually wonder if this production was kind of intended as a response to the Donmar. Because I think this is kind of like the first major staging of Julius Caesar since the Donmar. Don't think the RSC has done it in between, but I could be wrong. They might have done a production that just wasn't super publicized or whatever. Because I was reading an interview with Ben Wishaw, I can't even remember when it was, I'm not even sure if it was for this, I think it was well before this production, he was saying that he saw Harriet Walters, Julius Caesar, and that she was amazing. And that Julius Caesar, the premise of that was, it was, it's set in a women's prison, and they're put in, within the women's prison, they're putting on a production of Julius Caesar. I think? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And yes, so they, and there's continual slippage between what is real and what is the production. <laughs> right. And it's very much about, it's sort of finding, it ends up doing this interesting thing where we haven't gender-swapped Caesar. Like, Caesar is still a man, but you see what it is to be a man through the eyes of a woman. And you see that with all of the characters. And so there's this sort of interesting gender dynamic stuff that's going on. And I wonder if some of the gender swapped and how they gender swapped it in this production is kind of a, almost a response to that because Noemi was really pointing out about masculinity and how that really brought things up. And, you know, you have the women who seem to know what they're doing, who are running the show, but they're, they can't be the leaders. And that maybe the reason they pick Brutus is simply because he's a man. And so Cassius can't run the show because she's 
she can't publicly run the show because she's not a man. And so I just kind of, I don't know. It's, I, I don't have much more to say about it, just that I wonder if it is, in fact, a response to it and that part of why we're going back to it is because it is in conversation with that. We haven't talked very much about the second act. Right. And I did want to talk about the civil the civil war and the loud gunshots and the way the stage becomes disheveled. Well, that's not the right word. Mm-hmm. It becomes... Right. It's sort of the not-crazy version of what the Lindsay Turner Hamlet did, right? Where it was just like, here's rubble! Whereas here there was a bit of rubble, but it was very purposeful. Like, you could see, I think, and in a way that I didn't see this with the Donmar, is you could really see how violent this was and how they had really created this really unstable state that there was this huge power vacuum in a way that I guess that just wasn't there that you're like oh wow this is not only did they kill him but the fact that they didn't have a backup plan or not a backup plan but a, th- a what to do afterwards a transition plan the fact that they didn't you know also get rid of Anthony, <laughs> like cassie suggested mm-hmm. but it's even like look even without mark Antony, octavius would still have marched in there right well, maybe, but he it's only he only knows about it, right, because of Antony, so they might have had a new leader installed before he showed up. Who, I mean, I guess they could have picked Brutus, but like, that guy doesn't have very good judgment. If there's anything we've learned from this play. I think they should have picked Papilia Slena. Total hottie. That's definitely an excellent way to choose a yeah, successor. Yeah, I think in, in this I room, mean, I feel like this Caesar would have approved. No, but I... I agree. I think that's why I said all of the things I said earlier about how I was disgusted with everyone and how this play left me super cynical. And I just felt like all of them are corrupt and politics is a mess because normally you're just you're listening to these scenes between Cassius and Brutus and Octavius and Antony and you don't have a feel for the hundreds of other citizens, which are casually mentioned, but you don't really feel. Like, all of these people have died. And this time, I think you did get that feeling a lot more. You're not just seeing people in their tents, but here, this is the strength of having the audience and having all of these people around, covered in rubble, battle, shrapnel, or whatever. Yeah, it's not just a war between nobles. It's like a genuine civil war that's completely splitting the city apart. Yeah. I think also this is the strength of the fact that this set is kind of movable um, and, and changes, that there's this sense throughout that they're, that of spontaneity, <laughs> which is a funny thing to say after we just went through how, <laughs> how what a well-oiled machine it is. But there's the sense of you don't know where the stage is going to be and you don't know where, so and at the same time, you don't know where the shots are going to be fired. You don't know who's going to die. You, like there's this, whole uncertainty and spontaneity and chaos of the fact that you know that it isn't a proscenium arch that that where the stage is changes where the lights are you know during the when they're shooting and you hear gunfire i think there's like flashing lights and there's darkness and you know i could see that if you're in the audience you might feel almost like you should take cover because you don't know where it's coming from it's just loud and i would imagine somewhat visceral although again as you know pointed out they're not going to like get their own guns out and start defending themselves. This isn't Texas. (laughs) 
I'm look. I'm happy. I'm all for immersive theater. I do not want real guns to come out. <laughs> not that immersive. <laughs> I support March for Our Lives happening currently in the U.S. Also, we don't have to talk about this right now. We can wrap this up, but we should talk about Portia at some point. Who they totally threw away. I just... Portia came, has this one scene where she is the same high energy all the time. uh, I did not feel she was well-directed in this scene. I did not feel that she... I mean, there were some, like, moments of, like, there were some sexy touching moments and whatever. I did not really feel like she was a partner with Brutus, which... I didn't understand their connection. I, yeah, like, the only line when, you know, she says, if so, Portia be Brutus's harlot, not his wife. And I was like, okay, maybe, I guess maybe they have, like, really good sex. But I had, I didn't see their connection. She was completely mm-hmm. hysterical and didn't feel like his partner or equal. And then just sort of, she's like, oh, yes, she died. Huh. She swallowed fire. Like, yeah, she was completely thrown away. She wasn't important. She was poorly directed in that scene, and I don't understand why. <laughs> well, she's like, she was clearly supposed to be this fragile, mentally ill woman that he's married to, and that he sort of comforts and loves, but is not in love with. And who he, who he mostly feels is like, he cares for, but also is a little bit, feels like she's a millstone around his neck. So but honorable. The scene, yeah, the scene was totally one note, and it doesn't make any sense that his behavior would be disarranged by her grief, by, by grief over her death, you know? Like, when we get the reveal at the end of that, that argument between Brutus, Brutus and Cassius that Portia has died, we're like, oh, that's why you're acting so aggressive, because, like, a, a fundamental part of your identity has shifted. But it doesn't make sense in this production. And the same could be said of Calpurnia. Like, they threw away both of the wives. I didn't adequately understand the relationship between Caesar and Calpurnia. I feel like I didn't adequately understand the relationship between Brutus and Portia. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier about the... I think that both of these women were not well-directed, no offense. But I, they were both pretty one-note. And they were both, like, cool, sexy ladies, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with the actresses here. I have a problem with their relationships with their husbands who are leads in the play very clearly and they are just very clearly not and i don't for all of the thinking that went into the gender swapping of the other characters that are normally male and were played by females and was well done or thoughtfully done or well thought out the actual originally female characters in this play felt like somewhat of an afterthought well, see, I wondered if those things were linked. I mean, I agree with you. I wonder if the fact that they were like, well, I mean, if they hadn't gender swapped, then there would be almost, even if you didn't know what to do with the wives, there would be almost a, a, a sense of responsibility to, to do a good job of them because you only have two actresses in the play. And if you are, you know, a at all paying attention right or you know like you you yeah at all paying attention there you go that's a good point that's a good way of putting it then you don't want to throw your two tiny female characters onto the bus but i almost wonder 
I guess on the one hand, did they was one of the reasons to gender swap so that they would have rich female characters that they could play with so that they were not as obligated to develop the sort of less developed in text characters, but to still have something interesting for, you know, women, female act, well, obviously female actors. Yeah. And also to, you know, have women be part of the story. Um, is that, and or vice versa, did they go, oh, well, we've got all these women that are in the story, so it's less important for us to flesh out the wives. Like, I wonder, it could have gone either way or it could have been been both. I'm not, I'm not saying that that excuses it. I just wonder if those things are linked. I think they could be, but I still, I'm sorry, I just don't get it. Like, is it like the two wives are like all PMSy and one note annoyingly hysterical? <laughs> like, was that the choice? Why? Okay, I think they really, really could be linked, but for me, I still, I, I don't see the reason, and I just think it leads to, maybe that was a very specific choice, but what it leads to is poor reading of the text and poor acting, because Portia isn't allowed to play the many tactics and objectives that are there in the text that she has in this scene where she's trying all these different ways to convince Brutus. Brutus to confide yeah, in her. And, and then it just seemed like maybe they thought that, okay, she's mentally ill and we'll leave it at that. And instead of, as in the text, it says, making a voluntary wound here in my thigh, in the thigh, she had slit marks on her arm, sort of foreshadowing her later suicide. It's like, okay, they were like, all right, she's like mentally ill, suicide. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, but um, that lady's crazy will almost always be a boring slash poor interpretation. Yeah, like that's not a good take. Well, and it also, I think, doesn't, it, it's, a, it's problematic, especially in a production where the the women are running the show it's like why are some women running the show it, it mm-hmm. I, i'm not advocating for misogynistic reading but it would be one thing if you had a production where you're like oh well women are just dumb yeah which is not okay but it wouldn't mess with the rest of what's going on but then if you're like but the sanest person is cassius and casca and they're women but then these men are all married to flighty silly women like who the other women are trying to discredit, and then is there, like, internalized misogyny going on? Like, you would read it that way, but I don't think that, I don't know that that was really intended as internalized misogyny, even though we read it that way. Or, I don't know, I did, and I know M.A. did, at least. With. And there's also something a little bit tawdry about playing the wife off against the mistress. But that's fine. Um... <laughs> So that's the end of this episode of 21st Folio. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at bwestcineast, B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Mary Angela Rowe. I'm Mary Angela Rowe, editor-at-large of 7th Row, and you can find me on Twitter at Victorian. And Noemi Berkowitz. I'm Noemi Berkowitz, actor and director in Berlin, and honestly, don't bother finding me on Twitter. <laughs> oh. oh, it's not very exciting. My Twitter. Okay, I can do it again. 
I can say my Twitter. <laughs> Cam, keep all of it. <laughs> say your Twitter, Noemi. Why? I fine. Because then people can tweet at you how much they love you. Oh, that's a good reason. Like me. I'm going to start doing that as okay. of today. Um, I'm Noemi Berkowitz, an actor and director in Berlin, and you can tweet at me about how much you love me at Noemi Olaf. Also, you need to have a way for the um, Chauvin Berlin people to get in contact with you for a That's date true. so you can get tickets. It's true. And you can tweet at me about Chauvin tickets, how much you love me, or Cornhusker <laughs> football at Noemi Olaf. <laughs> I'm really curious which one of these is going to be in it. <laughs> both. <laughs> Everything. Both. And please rate and review us on iTunes. We'll see you again soon. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com.